Welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. My mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. The PCOS Diva podcast is proud to be sponsored by OvoSense Real-Time Ovulation Monitor, helping women with PCOS take back control of their cycles. OvoSense is a true fertility monitor that can help you track fertility medications and supplements along with any positive health changes you make to see if they're having an effect. OvoSense consists of a medical-grade silicone vaginal sensor, which tracks core body temperature every five minutes while you sleep. And in the morning, you simply download your data to the OvoSense app. It's quick and easy. Only OvoSense offers real-time, 24-hour advanced prediction in cycle and ovulation confirmation with 99% clinical proven accuracy and will work for you even if you have highly irregular cycles. Find out how OvoSense can help you understand your fertility at www.ovosense.com. If you haven't already, make sure you check out PCOSDiva.com. There I offer tons of great free information about PCOS and how to develop your PCOS diet and lifestyle plan so you can begin to thrive like a PCOS diva. Look for me on iTunes, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram as well. You are in for a special treat today on the PCOS Diva podcast. I'm so excited to have Lisa Hendrickson-Jack on my show. She is the host of the Fertility Friday podcast, and I was an honored guest on her podcast, and I'm so glad she's here to talk to us today. She has a brand new book out, and I read it over the last couple days, and it is fantastic and is really a great resource and tool um, for you to help sort of um, hack your your menstrual cycle and um, help you enhance your fertility. And it's not just for women that are trying to get pregnant. It's really for, for every woman um, with or without PCOS. So just to give you a little um, bit of Lisa's background, she is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. And her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, it debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. So happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I'm so excited to be here. Well, as I said, I'm I'm really excited about your book. It was excellent. And I'm just excited to, you know, dive into it and share um, some of my ahas from the book. Uh, And I think the first thing to do is to talk about um, your menstrual cycle as a vital sign. You know, we we think of vital signs as, you know, maybe your your heart rate, your your pulse. Um, Why do you consider your menstrual cycle a fifth vital sign? Well, it's really interesting about vital signs. So, I mean, as you mentioned, like, you know, heart rate or blood pressure or body temperature. These are bodily signs that respond in real time uh, to how our body is functioning. And so, for instance, if you're sick or something like that, then you would expect your temperature. Like if you had a fever, that's a sign that your body's fighting off an infection. So there's this very kind of real time measure of what's happening. And when you track your menstrual cycle uh, and you have a sense of what is normal. For instance, like with any vital sign, there are a set of normal parameters that we would expect it to fall into if everything is fine. And so with the menstrual cycle in the same way, when it starts falling out of those parameters, it's 
it's linked very specifically to what's happening in your body and your health. And I think for many women who start charting, that's one of the things that is most surprising. So for instance, like it, it doesn't always mean like a serious health issue. You could be under stress at work or <laughs> something could happen, whether it's positive or negative, you could be traveling, going on a vacation. And I think a lot of women are really surprised by how much their cycle responds directly in real time, even just to things like that, just like travel and stress. Uh, but when you have chronic issues, for example, like if your cycle is falling outside of the parameters on a regular consistent basis, then that again is a sign. And it, it often is telling us something very specific about what's happening health-wise. And if we look into it similar to the vital sign, then you can actually get a lot of answers. Whereas if you weren't tracking it, you wouldn't even know necessarily. So for women that haven't really heard the term tracking your cycle, um, I know it's probably pretty basic at this point for women that are have PCOS and are you know, looking to enhance their fertility, but why don't you just um, define what you mean by that? Well, I mean, when it comes to the menstrual cycle, what we're usually taught is that you have your period and like, then you have another one and no one really knows what happens in between periods. And so when I say tracking your cycle, I just mean that, you know, we break down what happens in the cycle, the three main signs that a woman would track if she's like actually, for instance, using fertility awareness would be her cervical mucus patterns, her basal body temperature, and then some women also check their cervical position. And so basically, you have your period, you would typically have a couple of days before you start observing cervical mucus, then you would have this uh, cervical fluid looks like lotion or like raw egg white stretchy. Um, many women have seen it, but maybe didn't know what it was. Uh, so you typically have that as you approach ovulation. And then after you ovulate, that mucus typically goes away. If you're tracking your temperatures, they go up. And then they would stay up for about 12 to 14 days until your next period. And so that simply would be, and some women would do it kind of like officially on a chart, on an app. Other women have a, a, just an idea of it and they'll kind of notice when they have mucus and kind of just have that awareness of it. But that's all I mean by tracking, just having a sense of what those menstrual cycle events are and actually paying attention throughout your cycle to where you're at. Well, in one of your chapters, you talk about the menstrual cycle as a diagnostic tool. And I've um, shared this on the podcast before that tracking my cycles was actually how I found out that I had PCOS. And I was using the NAPRO um, model or the, the Crichton method of fertility tracking, which is basically tracking your cervical mucus. And the facilitator that was helping me and teaching me the method, she noticed that my cycle had multiple patches of cervical mucus. Like it, you know, it would kind of get sort of fertile and then it would go back and it would be fertile again, but I never really ovulated um, or I just had these really long cycles. Um, and she was the one that said, gosh, have you ever heard of PCOS? You know, and um, has anybody diagno diagnosed you with PCOS? So, for me, it was really the missing link, um, and it was a diagnostic tool to get me the diagnosis that, you know, it took 15 years to get. Um, so tell us a little bit more about using your menstrual cycle as a, a diagnostic tool. Yes, absolutely. You know, it gives me chills when you say 15 years. Um, I've worked with a number of clients who, um, you know, were looking at the chart, and similar to what you're saying, we're seeing these patterns. And to me, it's quite obvious. Uh, but and so because it's so obvious to me, it's really hard for me to understand how it could take, you know, medical providers so long to pick up on this. Uh, so just in, in, in the sense of using the menstrual cycle as a diagnostic tool, I mean, the first thing to recognize is that there is a normal parameter of what we would expect to see. Um, so in overall length, which is only one of the parameters, a healthy cycle falls somewhere between 24 and 35 days. And that's from the first day of your period until the last day before your next one. Um, but within that, we have your period, uh, which we would expect to fall somewhere between three to seven day days. So some women might have a really scant amount of bleeding, which would be something to look at. And some women have bleeding that lasts for a lot longer than seven days, uh, which is also something to look at. Um, and then we would expect so within that 35-day cycle, then um, we would expect ovulation to happen at some point between day 10 and 23. Uh, and, not, and you'll notice I didn't say day 14 because there's a natural variation. Um, most women don't ovulate on day 14 every single time. <laughs> uh, and variation is the one thing all women have in common. 
And so in a typical cycle then, we would expect to see, like a healthy cycle, we would expect, expect to see your period and then, you know, a few dry days. But then we would expect to see mucus kind of leading to ovulation. <laughs> so it's like a sentence, like eventually the sentence comes to an end, you ovulate, and then you know, you go into the next phase. And then we would expect that second half of the cycle to be about 12 to 14 days. So we have overall this kind of general sense of what is normal. For women with PCOS, as you mentioned, um, what we're typically seeing is a delayed ovulation. And so women with PCOS, I mean, one of the signs um, kind of most obvious of PCOS is this lengthened cycle, uh, typically falling over 35 days much of the time. And many women with PCOS maybe will find that they have fewer than nine cycles a year because overall their cycle is averaging so long. And so what you described, Amy, is this, what, is this kind of pattern where your ovaries are trying to ovulate. As you approach ovulation, your follicles are developing and producing estrogen. And that estrogen is what triggers our cervical mucus. And then in order for us to ovulate, that estrogen has to get high enough to send that trigger back to our pituitary gland to actually release luteinizing hormone and cause ovulation to happen. And so when you're having these really long cycles, essentially what's happening is the follicles are kind of trying to ovulate, doing something, but then something is happening to prevent that from like something is basically happening so the ovaries are not ovulating and so you see this pattern of um, for many women it's either kind of just a long delayed um, but some women will see cervical mucus and then they'll stop and then they'll see cervical mucus and then they'll stop and then eventually they'll ovulate but it can be really frustrating um, on both fronts so for women who are trying to conceive it's really frustrating because then it's hard you kind of, it's like a, like if you're running a race and it never ends, you kind of start to feel like, what's the point of this? Because for instance, if you're trying to conceive, you're, you need to time sex with mucus because mucus is what tells you that you're approaching ovulation and it's what keeps the sperm alive and all that. But if you have multiple patches of mucus, then obviously that becomes a challenge because then it's, you think, okay, this is the time, but then it's not. And it's like, okay, now this is the time and then it's not. Um, and then similarly for women who may be trying to avoid pregnancy, then this they have this long, long phase that they have to consider themselves potentially fertile. Um, and so that is one of the, the kind of main, one of the most obvious signs uh, that women would show if they have PCOS. Um, and then, I mean, it just depends. There's other, um, many women with PCOS, because you have this long stretch of estrogen, essentially, unopposed by progesterone, because you only produce progesterone after ovulation in significant quantities. And estrogen and progesterone play a different role in developing the uterine lining. So, for instance, women with PCOS, you're having kind of unopposed estrogen for these long stretches of time in your menstrual cycle. And for some women, that might result in changes in their menstrual cycle. So for some women, they might find that their periods are actually heavier uh, because estrogen is what causes the lining to proliferate and grow, whereas progesterone is what helps the lining to mature. Um, so let me know if that kind of answers the question about how to use the menstrual cycle as a diagnostic tool. But essentially what you have in PCOS is this very often, this very obvious um, pattern that goes, that falls way beyond what we would consider to be normal and healthy. Yeah, and, and we won't get into it um, right now, but in your book you also talk about um, thyroid issues and how you can see that in your cycle, um, and you write about that um, in detail in your book. Mm -hmm. Well, and I suppose one thing for anyone who's kind of like, well, what do you see? <laughs> um, I think one of the most obvious things is the lower temperatures. I mean, as soon as you're charting your basal body temperature, you see these low temperatures. But um, thyroid disorders are one of the most common reasons for menstrual cycle disruptions, whether we have um, delayed ovulation or um, issues with menstruation, so heavier periods or too light periods, uh, shorter luteal phase, because thyroid interferes with your overall hormone production. And what you're seeing in your menstrual cycle is direct result of your hormonal profile. Um, so I just had to get myself off a of mute there. Um, so something that I did want to have you address, um, and you go into really wonderful detail about it, is um, hormonal um, intervention and, and um, birth control or the pill or other um, contraceptive devices that introduce artificial kind of hormones that they really um, can be very disruptive um, 
you know, for our health. And, um, and I think that for a lot of women with PCOS, that when we have these really long, irregular cycles, that when we're given the pill, now we have like what I think we think of as sort of the perfect cycle. You know, we bleed every month and it's, um, you know, easy and predictable. Um, but could you sort of give us some um, insight why that can be problematic and it's really not the cure? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think it takes us back to when we spoke about the fifth vital sign at the beginning of the call, which is when you think of your menstrual cycle as an actual vital sign, then what happens is you recognize that when you're having this cycle that falls way outside of the parameters, it's actually a sign of a deeper underlying issue. And the example that I give in my book is like, you know, if you if you were um, in your house and your fire alarm starts going off because there's a grease fire in the kitchen, your solution wouldn't be to like take the battery out <laughs> and then like go about your day. Um, one of the biggest, and I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this uh, quite a bit on your podcast, is that women with PCOS are at an increased uh, risk for a number of cardiovascular, risk, like they're at a 50% higher chance of developing diabetes in their lives and um, there's the the cardiovascular risk factors go up and so because the ovaries are involved it seems as though the medical establishment has decided that it only really matters when she's trying to have kids so it's like okay if your cycle is you know really long and irregular we're just going to put you on the pill and then you know what when you want to have babies later on you just come back to me and we'll just give you some drugs that are going to make you ovulate and that seems to be the general way that PCOS is often treated by medicine. The problem is that if a woman has these signs, it's also a sign of a health issue that she needs to be aware of. Um, women with PCOS are much more likely to have issues with insulin resistance, um, you know, glucose intolerance, that, that which is just one of the many issues that, that are kind of there and present. And so really, uh, what I would like to see is that our healthcare, uh, just the way we look at the menstrual cycle, instead of trying to just create this fake menstrual cycle with the birth control pill um, to actually address the underlying issue. Because if we address the underlying issue, then the menstrual cycle will normalize and then you will have a healthier woman. So what, what the hormonal birth control, like what it does is it doesn't actually give you uh, a menstrual cycle. So that idea that it regulates the cycle, that's just incorrect. That's not what it's actually doing. Um, so in order to have a menstrual cycle, you would actually have to produce your natural estrogens, and then you have to ovulate, and then you'd have to produce your natural progesterone, and then you would have an actual period. So a true menstrual period can only happen after ovulation. And that's because your uterine lining then is affected by the estrogen and the progesterone, and that is what a true period represents. Uh, when you're on hormonal birth control, most types of hormonal birth control, especially the types that um, combined synthetic estrogens and progestins, most of them prevent ovulation. So they actually stop you from ovulating, which is one of the main ways that it works. And so what you're experiencing then every 28 days is not a true menstruation. What you're experiencing is this withdrawal bleed. So you're, you know, you're getting these synthetic hormones that are not the same as the hormones that your body produces and that those hormones then suppress your natural cycle and so your ovaries are still producing tiny amounts of your own natural estrogen and possibly even progesterone but one of the things we hear as women is like okay well when you're on the pill your body thinks it's you're pregnant or um uh, there's just these, all of these ideas about what the pill is doing, but if you were to measure the hormone levels of a woman on birth control, they would more closely resemble the, the hormone levels of a woman in menopause, like her natural hormones. And so that's important to recognize. So then when you take the little break from the pill pack or when you, you know, pull out the ring or take off the patch or whatever the case is, and you start to bleed, what you're having is a withdrawal bleed. It's not an actual period. And, and the whole time, your cycle is just put to a halt. Um, and then there's a whole host of side effects that are associated with hormonal birth control. Not all women experience them in the same way. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of women say, well, you know, I was on the pill and I was totally fine. Uh, but what I talk about in the book are basically the, the, the effects that every woman experiences. So for instance, you know, the pills dramatically suppresses your testosterone levels. Um, 
and it dramatically, as we talked about, suppresses your natural estrogen and progesterone levels. You're really not producing your natural uh, hormones to the same effect. That's something that happens to every woman on hormonal birth control. What's different is how women experience it. So some women are going to experience depression, anxiety, um, you know, low energy. Some women are going to notice a dramatic reduction in their libido and uh, an increase in, in how painful sex is or a difficulty with orgasm because testosterone is really important for all that. Whereas other women won't really notice those same effects. Uh, but I, especially for women with PCOS as well, you know, the pill is, is known to kind of increase insulin resistance. And it ha so there's just a lot of negative effects. So Instead of one problem, you're getting another, and at the end of the day, you're not actually addressing the underlying issue whatsoever, and it, it, you're putting like a band-aid over it. And then when you come off of the pill, you still have to address those issues because even though you weren't seeing them, those issues were still happening in the background. Yeah, I, I received an email just, I think, two days ago from a PCOS diva, and she, she said to me, um, just wondering why you think birth control is so bad. I'm on it now, and it's currently saving my life. It's okay if you don't like it, but it's risky to spread around misinformation to desperate women. Hormonal treatment already has a stigma, and why are you adding to it? I think, you know, I, I like to bring on guests um, that give us sort of the um, – really explain the risk factors because I don't think mainstream medical does. You know, you, you get a prescription for the pill and you're not given all of the, the risk factors and the, um, the real, uh, I guess, details of how it's, um, what it's doing to you physiologically. And so that's why I think it's really important. Your book is very important because it gives women the information they need to make an educated choice. And um, I'm not saying that, that it's not helpful to some women who are really um, experiencing difficult symptoms, but it, as you said, Lisa, it's a Band-Aid, and it's not getting to the root cause. And when you get off of it, once you can't be on it forever, um, you're still going to have to deal with those uh, you know, issues that you had before the pill and maybe even more. Well, and I think it's uh, one of the one of my goals was to not only talk about it because <laughs> everyone's talking about it, but I really wanted to connect women with the the, the science, so mm -hmm. uh, so that you can feel more informed and educated. It's sometimes hard when you have a perspective that is different than the modern kind of mainstream medical uh, perspective, and really feel like you don't have a leg to stand on. And so I wanted to really provide that. And so, I mean, I think that's an important comment. We've come a long way. The pill came out in 1960. Uh, you know, that was a long time ago. And when it came out, it was associated with a, a whole different, um, just a different time, a different era. And so for many women of that era, it represented this freedom because it was the first time that many women were able to have that agency in terms of making that decision of whether or not they were going to have babies. And so um, my, my goal isn't to completely ignore the significance of that and pretend like that wasn't a big deal. But um, my whole point, as you mentioned, Amy, is to really, like, the, the, at the end of the day, this is about informed consent um, because the pill is not harmless. And the, there's so much research to verify all the different ways that the pill can, can affect the body. And so, you know, my opinion about it, and I've also used the pill. So when I was a teenager, I had horribly painful periods, and I used the pill because I didn't know how else to do it. I was really active. I was involved in all these sports, and I, uh, I just needed something to help me. And I didn't know of any other way. And so at that time, it, it, it was the solution. But, um, you know, looking back, I did experience some effects I had no idea at the time. Like I had migraines and I never had them outside of that period of window of my time. And I also had a lot of anxiety and crazy behavior. So <laughs> looking back, I'm like, okay, I'm sure it affected me. Um, but, you know, at the, 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 the whole purpose of this isn't to say women shouldn't use it. It's to say that, um, you know, if we all knew about the effects, there's a couple things that would happen. Um, I believe that some women would just use it in the exact same way that they're using it now. And so, and that's completely fine because they're informed of the risks. I believe that some women would use it, but potentially use it for a period of time. So maybe like you're in college and like, I can't handle 
all of this, you know, menstrual mm-hmm. cycle stuff right now. But with that knowledge, they might not use it for as long. And then some women would choose not to use it because they would know that there is another, there are other alternatives. Um, and just to kind of, I just want to highlight a couple kind of some of the more jarring um, side effects associated with hormonal birth control. So, I mean, I did mention the testosterone. Um, the pill seriously depletes uh, testosterone. It's, it's, it's quite significant. And there's studies that have uh, kind of examined women over time. So even women who've come off of hormonal birth control, uh, there was one study where a year later, the women who had taken it still had lower testosterone. Um, and I found one study of women with PCOS, and they actually studied these women 10 years off of hormonal birth control. And at the five-year mark, they still had statistically significantly lower testosterone. Um, and even at the 10-year mark, it was no longer statistically significant, but you could look at the actual numbers and see that they were still slightly higher. So I feel like, you know, that's something important. And testosterone is associated with the sexual side effects, as we talked about. Low libido is a really, really common, it's one of the most common side effects. Um, And many women don't know that because, of course, they're not being informed that this could happen. And so for many women who experience low libido or painful sex or, you know, even just a reduced sensation, um, those types of things, they often just believe it's them and maybe I'm just not that sexual of a person. And really, again, about the informed consent piece, at least if somebody told you, okay, you know, this could happen, then if you experience those effects, you have the opportunity to say, okay, my doctor said this could happen. So I'm just going to go off of these for a couple of months just to see if it could be related. With When we don't tell women what the effects are, we don't even give them the opportunity to do that because they don't even know that this could be affecting it. Um, And one really jarring statistic, there was a study where they followed these women for three months on um, combined hormonal birth control, so the pill and then I believe it was the ring, and they measured the clitoral volume, they measured the thickness of the vulva tissues, so for instance around the vaginal opening, they measured the thickness of the skin, the tissues, and um, all of the women experienced a decrease in their clitoral volume, meaning their clit shrunk and the average shrinkage was 20%. And many of these women also experienced a thinning out of the vaginal opening. So for women who experience painful sex, um, and that's, it's often pain around that area, like pain around the kind of penetration aspect of it, um, because it's around the, you know, the opening of the, the vagina. And again, this is something where women are having therapy and like talking about all the, you know what I'm saying? Like this is often thought of as psychosomatic, uh, as a psychosomatic issue. And again, about informed consent, just knowing that it could be related. Of course, every woman doesn't experience these side effects, but many women do. And if we're not telling them about it, then how would they even know that it could be related to it? Yeah. And, and another, um, side effects too that I think women really need to know because 60% of women with PCOS have some mood related disorder, anxiety, depression, like bipolar even. Um, And the pill um, can contribute to those, you know, feelings of anxiety and depression as well. Um, Well, and one kind of compelling, so the testosterone kind of contributes to that if it's lowered. So women with lower testosterone are more prone to depression. Mm -hmm. But um, the effect on the nutrient, the micronutrients, uh, particularly B vitamins, is also quite jarring. So, um, you know, what the research shows is that women on birth control, they metabolize B vitamins differently. And so, for instance, folate and vitamin B12 Uh, over time, especially because time compounds this effect, uh, you know, this increases with time. So you're more likely to be deficient if you're not supplementing um, with those. But vitamin B6, in particular, the amount of disruption is so incredible that um, in order to maintain a normal B6 level while on hormonal birth control, you have to take almost 40 times the recommended wow. daily allowance. Like so, and vitamin B6, I highlight that because it, vitamin B6 is, is critical for our serotonin production. Um, it, it impairs, the, the deficiency of vitamin 6 impairs our tryptophan metabolism, and that is related to how we produce serotonin and serotonin is associated with mood so when you're talking about mood disorders anxiety depression bipolar I mean if a woman is on hormonal birth control and she's experiencing depressive symptoms 
many cases she ends up on antidepressants. And again, this is a physiological thing that happens to women on the pill. This is like, so how, how women experience that is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Some women may experience depression. Some women may experience anxiety. And I just want to mention that not all women go on the pill and immediately have depression and anxiety. I interviewed this one woman who was on the pill for eight years. And at the eight-year point, she started having panic attacks. And so keep in mind, again, these nutritional deficiencies, they kind of happen and are compounded with time. So that's, that makes it even more complicated because then if you start to develop depressive and, you know, symptoms, anxiety symptoms kind of years after you started taking it, if you didn't even know that it could be related, are you even going to make the connection? How long is it going to take you to make the connection? And so I feel like it's just so important just to kind of recognize, like, this isn't to say no one should ever take the pill, but again, it's all about informed consent. If you know about these factors, then if they happen, you can at least know, like, okay, I remember someone told me that it could be related. So instead of thinking I'm crazy, I'm just going to actually, you know, come off of this for a little bit and see if it could be related to that. Well, and I also wanted to mention that, you know, if you're listening and um, you're thinking, well, gee, maybe I want to come off the pill, I think your book has some excellent guidance um, in how to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that, um, especially if you consider the nutrient deficiencies and things like that, I know a lot of women are concerned to come off of it. And um, you've probably encountered this too. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why women are afraid to come off of it. So one of the reasons, of course, is the the pregnancy aspect. If you're not ready to get pregnant, then there's a lot of fear around it. And a lot of that comes from what we're taught about our bodies. So when I was growing up, I was taught that, you know, as a woman, I could get pregnant on any day of my cycle and there were no safe days. And that made it really terrifying, the thought, because you really believe that any time you have sex with your partner, you're going to get pregnant. (laughs) Um, But when you learn that there's only a small window of time where pregnancy is possible and you can learn how to identify that, um, that really helps just to kind of settle some of those anxieties once you actually realize that there's a small window of fertility that you can identify. Um, But I mean, in addition to that, a lot of women are on birth control for specific reasons. I mean, women with PCOS, you know, perhaps your cycles were so irregular and you just really felt like you weren't in control. You had no idea when your period was coming and things like that. So um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that many women have painful, you know, hard periods and they go on it for that too. So, I mean, in terms of like planning to come off of it, I feel like there is, there is a few things that you can do Uh, in the book. Just, we talk, I talk about kind of general dietary guidelines um, when you are aware of the specific nutrients that the pill is depleting. So in addition to B vitamins, you know, zinc, magnesium, coenzyme Q10, um, selenium, there's a lot of different nutrients that kind of go haywire. If you take some time to address that and just take some time even to work with a functional practitioner who can help you to optimize those levels, if you're really nervous about coming off of it, you could take a couple of months to do that and kind of minimize the possible kind of coming down effects that might might be there because I know a lot of women are concerned about that um, but I feel like one of the main messages that I like to share is that you know a lot of women you know in our lives our lives as women are so complicated um, and the way that our culture views pregnancy is also very complicated so as a woman um, we're often waiting for that perfect time for everything to come into perfect order and that means that you know education we got to get that done we've got to get the job we've got to get the house we've got to get the partner we've got to get everything in order before we're even willing to consider pregnancy which is just part of our culture but what happens is that then you know because we're so terrified of getting pregnant the second we come off the pill we often wait until we're until everything is timed perfectly to come off the pill and then because we've been taught that we can get pregnant on every day of our cycles and all that, we expect that pregnancy to happen immediately, even if we don't say we do. <laughs> even if we're like, well, you know, even if it doesn't happen the first cycle, it's okay. We really do expect to get pregnant because you spent your entire, you know, teens and 20s um, prevent, trying actively to prevent it. And so one of the, the things that I talk about in the book is the, in addition to the side effects that women may experience while they're taking it. Um, What the research shows us is that the pill is associated with a temporary delay in the return of normal fertility. And what that means is that there's a specific period of time where you are subfertile and uh, it takes your body. It's a transition period that your body goes through. Now we all know some women get pregnant immediately after coming off and some women even get pregnant while taking it. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, you don't know how your body is going to respond. 
And so um, an absolute minimum period of six months is warranted, depending on the type of um, birth control that you're taking. But I actually suggest a period of 18 months to two years. Because when you track your cycles and you know that there's a normal parameter of what a healthy cycle looks like, women who come off the pill, you know, for the first nine to 12 cycles uh, typically have longer luteal phases, meaning delayed ovulation. Um, and especially those first couple off of it, it can take time to ovulate but when you first come off of it, depending on how long you've been on it. Um, and in addition to that, um, women coming off the pill often have suppressed mucus production for a while. I've worked with women who um, they come off the pill, they're ovulating, but their cycles are dry, meaning they're not producing any mucus. Uh, and that's a, an effect, a side effect of hormonal birth control that is temporary. Uh, these women then start to produce mucus once their hormones kind of go back in balance but that can affect your chances of getting pregnant. And then also women coming off of birth control typically have a lower, uh, a shorter luteal phase for several cycles after coming off. So the luteal phase, the time between ovulation and your period, it needs to be about 12 to 14 days because that's how long it takes for the egg to implant. So a woman coming off the pill, she may have a luteal phase of eight days or nine days, and it might take several cycles before that lengthens out to a healthier range you know, 11, 12, 13 days. And that can interfere with your chances of getting pregnant as well. So um, there's a lot of things to take into consideration. And again, it really comes down to the informed consent piece and the pill is not harmless. And we, as women, we're not being taught about this very real transition period that our bodies go through when we're coming off of the pill. Such good information. Um, and I pulled aside two kind of highlights from your book that I just wanted you to mention before we finish the podcast. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about light exposure and um, your cycle? And then I want you to just sort of give us the lowdown on, um, you know, toxicity and, and menstrual products. So th those two things and, and we'll wrap it up. Awesome. Yes. Um, well, I mean, light exposure, when it happens at the right time of day, uh, can actually support your menstrual cycle. So this goes along with our understanding of the circadian rhythm. And so, um, for instance, when we wake up in the morning, um, often if it's really dark in your room, you might feel a bit groggy. But then when you open the blinds or when you step outside for a minute and you're exposed to that light, it stimulates your cortisol production. And that makes you feel awake. We've, I think, all you know, safe to say that all of us have experienced that. And so, light stimulates our cortisol production. Um, it's like nature's coffee, <laughs> um, because it really does wake us up. And um, conversely, at nighttime, you know, if it's we need it to be dark in order to stimulate our melatonin production. So um, the way that light affects the menstrual cycle, because you know, our menstrual cycle then is we've, you know, we talked about estrogen and progesterone and how these two hormones really impact, it, it, our cycle is really a printout of what's happening with these two hormones. Um, when your melatonin production is disrupted, um, for instance, at nighttime with light exposure when you're not supposed to have light exposure, that can really reduce our progesterone production. So all of these things are related. Uh, so, I mean, what that comes down to in the most practical terms is that Ideally, um, so our melatonin production starts to rise at nighttime. So say, you know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, that's when it's kind of starting to rise. And it reaches its peak kind of in the middle of the night when we're sleeping. So in order to have our optimal uh, hormone balance, um, that would be then reflected in our menstrual cycle, a healthy menstrual cycle with a robust you know, second half, a robust luteal phase, we would really need to support that melatonin production at night. So when it comes to, you know, practical things, I mean, you know, we all have our devices. I've got my laptop and my phone. Um, as we're winding down at night, one of the things that we can do is, you know, if you're tied to your devices, if you're not willing to kind of, so ideally you'd give yourself a bit of a cutoff and maybe have a couple of hours before you go to sleep without your devices. Um, but, you know, for, the, one of the most basic things you can do is change the color of your screen. So I use um, an app that I downloaded called F.Lux, and it turns my screen orange. <laughs> so, um, you know, and it, 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 you can time it so that it kind of naturally does that at nighttime. So around, like, say, 8 o'clock, my screen starts to turn orange. And having the screen orange is what blocks out, orange or red, I would say, blocks out that blue light. 
Um, so when you're outside and you're exposed to the sun, that is blue light. Um, and it's kind of like the highest, uh, it has the highest effect of, on your hormones, basically. It triggers your cortisol production. And so by uh, changing the color of your screen to orange, and I, on my cell phone, actually, I've changed it so that, you know, at nighttime it turns red. Um, and you can actually, you can do that. There's a lot of different settings. You can kind of play around. You can even Google it, like Google how to turn my cell phone red or something like that, and you'll get the directions. Um, but by doing that, you're kind of minimizing your exposure to this blue light. You're kind of dampening that out. And the way that you can, so it sounds really interesting, like just to say it, but you can actually feel the difference. So I'll give an example. If you're working late at night and you're on your laptop and the screen is blaring, often you don't necessarily, like it's 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, and you don't necessarily feel tired. And that's because that light is actively, like, blocking your melatonin. Melatonin is what makes you feel tired. But when you have this stuff on your screen and it's orange, you actually start to notice, oh, wow, I actually still, like you can feel the tired coming on, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I actually have some blue light blocking glasses. They're kind of like sunglasses. And um, since I've started wearing those, even if I'm not on the screen, like if I'm just reading my book in bed with the light on, um, my, I do get sleepy faster, and the quality of sleep since reducing the blue light at nighttime has improved so much, and it's just a simple lifestyle shift that you can make. So I was so happy to see that listed, and you know, you talk about it in your book. And um, the other thing you had mentioned is the, and I actually sent it to my son who's in college, and he keeps texting me at like 1 a.m. at night, I mean the morning. <laughs> But you talk about like being a, like sound asleep by 11 p.m. is so critical for your body's detoxification process. Mm -hmm. Well, in our bodies, kind of each organ system has a period of time when it's most active. And so if you're able to get into bed and be sleeping, ideally by 10, but, you know, 10 would be better, 11 would be, you know, also good, um, then by the time you're actually sleeping, so for instance, your liver systems are most active at 1 a.m., you know, approximately, based on, you know, traditional Chinese medicine uh, theory, but it's uh, when you're actually sleeping, you're supporting your body's detoxification systems in your liver, uh, you know, even if you're, so we're all exposed to lots of different environmental toxins, but even if we went back, you know, 6,000 years or something and there were no pollutants, your liver would still be detoxifying your own hormones. Your liver still has to break down your own estrogens and progesterones. And so if you're, um, if you're just, just by going to bed on time, you're actually supporting that. And one of the things that my clients find actually, um, just it's it's interesting so some of my clients have concerns about progesterone production you know maybe they're having spotting before their period comes or maybe their luteal phase is short like we spoke about um, one of the ways to support progesterone production is also to sleep in the dark and to make it really dark when I say dark I mean like you put your hand in front of your face and you can barely see it and so uh, it doesn't have to be really expensive it doesn't have to be fancy often if you you know until you find the perfect blackout blinds you can just put up like a sheet or something over your window or a sleep mask that's what I do I <laughs> I love my sleep mask and that has made a huge difference in my sweet sleep quality too. Yes. And sleep masks are great, but your skin has photo light receptors. Ah, okay. So even if you have the sleep mask, if you're, if you still have street lights coming in and led lights, your TV on, I know a lot of people sleep with the TV on. Um, then even if you have the mask, your body, cause it, you can probably relate. Like even if your eyes are closed or you have a mask, your body, you know, if there's light in the room, Mm -hmm. um, and so again, it's like best, better, you know what I mean? Like you do whatever you can, but it's just something to think about in terms of that. One of the side effects, side effects, one of the effects that my clients, uh, will always report is that they sleep better and more soundly. And it's kind of this unexpected benefit of having the room be completely dark. Uh, so those are just some ways. And what I love about them is that they are free and easy yeah. and make a significant impact on your cycle, especially if you're charting your cycle. You can actually see for yourself and you can feel the difference, how much better you sleep, but also um, just you can see in your, your charts. For some women, sleeping in the dark is the thing that helps them to regulate their cycles. Now, it's not always that easy, so I'm not saying every woman is just that easy, uh, but for many women, just by doing that, they'll see a significant improvement in their cycles. 
Yeah, and there there's more and more science and research coming out that says women with PCOS have disruptive circadian cycles and melatonin, like lower melatonin, and that's like a key key to helping them, you know, get back on track. So this so I was excited to see you writing about that in your book. And you also talk about detoxification and avoiding endocrine disruptors and toxins and you know, you bring up um, menstrual products. And I think that's something that when we think about um, removing toxins from our, our environment, we don't always think about that. So just um, tell us what to look for in terms of menstrual products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, menstrual products is an interesting discussion, I think. Um, typically, I mean, what I would say to look for is to kind of disregard the menstrual product aisle in your regular grocery store and start thinking about looking specifically kind of at what your health food store has to offer. Um, Conventional pads and tampons are made with a variety of problematic materials, um, including rayon um, and just synthetic materials. So imagine, I mean, there are engineers who are hired specifically to try to find the most highly absorbent materials so they can package them and put it in these products. And um, when you put highly absorbent material, say, into your vagina, for example, like a tampon, um, if you think about what your period is, your period is not blue liquid. Um, (laughs) It's actually, you know, blood and tissue and secretions. And so um, having this highly absorbent, um, like, tampon in your body can dry out your, like, for anyone who's used tampons, you know, you've had the experience then of when, you know, you're at the end of your period and there's not a whole lot. And it's kind of hard to pull out. Um, There was a a demonstration that was done um, that I saw when I was, I, I was probably like 19 or something. It was when I first came to university and they put a tampon in a glass of water and kind of let it do its thing. And you saw how big it expanded to, which isn't even possible in the human body. And then you pull it out. And then in the water was all of the, the little, um, you know, the little fibers and that's what's left in your vagina. (laughs) And, you know, in addition to that, you know, um, menstrual products are made with cotton and cotton is one of the most heavily sprayed and genetically modified crops. So you've got um, these fibers that are synthetic that can be left in your, your vagina. You've got this, uh, you know, cotton that's often genetically modified, meaning that it's either sprayed heavily, heavily, heavily with, to- uh, you know, toxic pesticides, you know, and, or there's a certain type of genetically modified cotton that it's genetically modified to produce toxins to kill the, to kill the uh, bugs, um, which is like, even if I say that it sounds like science fiction, and at the end of the day, it's way too much toxins in your vagina. So many women find that just by switching to organic tampons made of organic cotton, or switching to organic pads, uh, some women will switch to menstrual cups. Uh, menstrual cups then operate completely differently because they're catching your blood. So you don't have the, the fibers in your vagina, you don't have exposure to um, the drying, like if, you know, those types of things, it's a lot more comfortable. A lot of women find it to be a lot more comfortable. Um, and then also cloth uh, pads. Some women are, you know, there's organic cloth pads. So just there's a lot of variety in terms of how to manage your, your period. But some women find that just by switching out those products, just by doing that, they experience fewer menstrual symptoms. Some women find that their period pain goes way down. Um, and others find that their cycle is actually different. Um, when you think about what these chemicals are, so whether it's the chemicals in your pads and tampons or whether it's the chemicals in every single beauty product made and geared for women, like, you know, lotions and soaps and household cleaners, like all of that stuff, uh, they all contain these chemicals. And these chemicals are called xenoestrogens. We can refer to them as xenoestrogens because their molecular structure is kind of similar enough to our estrogen that our body, it kind of mimics the effects of estrogen, but it's not the same. Um, So it can disrupt the menstrual cycle. And so some women find that just by really consciously looking at these things and and reducing them over time, it's a process, that their cycles improve. And so between sleeping in the dark and reducing your toxin exposure, um, many women, just by doing those two things, again, that are quite, you know, I wouldn't say free, the removing toxins can be a bit, you know, because you got to replace things. But... um, can have such a significant impact on your cycle and just balancing your hormones. 
Well, this this has been such a helpful podcast um, for me, and I think so many women listening. And we really just cr- scratched the surface of the content in your book, um, and I'm I'm so excited to to for you to get that this out to the public. I think um, it's coming out this week, the fifth vital sign. Um, and tell us where we can find the book, Lisa. Well, the book is available on all of your favorite online retailers, so it'll be available. It's available on Amazon um, in all formats, including the audiobook version, because I'm a podcaster, so of course I had to do uh, an audiobook. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And for the listeners, if you're wanting to jump in and get the first chapter, you can actually get the first chapter for free at my website, The Fifth Vital Sign book.com and that's all spelled out so uh, the first chapter is where we really dive into the concept of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign so if our conversation today interested you then you're going to really love that uh, that first chapter and also I encourage um, listeners to check out your podcast as well the fertility friday podcast it's excellent and Um, You have a lot of amazing guests on that show, especially if you're wanting to learn more about optimizing your fertility. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's so much fun. Well, thank you again, Lisa, and thank you everyone for listening. Um, I really look forward to being with you again very soon. Take care. PCOS Diva podcast is proud to be sponsored by OvuSense Real-Time Ovulation Monitor, helping women with PCOS to take back control of their cycles. OvuSense is a true fertility monitor that can help you to track fertility medications and supplements along with any positive health changes you make to see if they're having an effect. Find out how OvuSense can help you to understand your fertility at OvuSense. O-V-U-S-E-N-S-E dot com. Well, that wraps up our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on the PCOS Diva podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you liked this episode, remember to subscribe to PCOS Diva on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to this show. And if you have a minute, please leave me a quick review on iTunes because I love to hear from you. If you think someone else might benefit from this free podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend or family member so she can benefit from it too. And don't forget to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Just enter your email at PCOSDiva.com to get instant access and make sure you never miss a future podcast. This is Amy Medling wishing you good health.